Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 as we continue in this exposition in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to be taking two weeks to look at this passage. So this will really be the first part and next Lord's Day the second. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we ask that by your spirit as we come to the preaching of your word that you would search our souls. Would our hearts be bowed and our wills bent to receive your will and to gladly do your will. Give us the assurance that when we open the book, it is your voice whom we hear. Would Christ be not only shown to us, but would Christ be trusted upon? For any here not knowing you, that by your grace you show them their need for the Savior, in whom we will always need. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Following the story of the boy Jesus at the temple at the end of chapter 2, Luke presses fast forward where in chapter 3 the boy has now become a man. Luke chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that Jesus was 30 years of age when he began his ministry. The 12-year-old who grew in both stature and wisdom had matured into full manhood. But before we get into the ministry of Jesus, we need to first understand the ministry of John. He was Jesus' cousin in the flesh, but more importantly, his forerunner in the plan of God. He possessed the unique ministry of preparing the way for the Lord. And you'll remember that in Luke chapter 1, 
it began by setting up both the coming of Jesus and the coming of John side by side. Both of their births were announced by the angel. Both were children of promise. In the case of John, he was born to one who was barren and beyond years, and so he was a child of promise. Like Isaac, who was born from Abraham and Sarah in their old age. But in the case of Jesus, he was the child of promise. He was the very ultimate child of promise. He was without human father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin. And he was the one whom God pointed to when God told Abraham that he would provide a lamb for the burnt offering. There in Genesis chapter 22, you'll know that Isaac, Abraham's son, he was spared. He was spared from sacrifice. And Abraham, he looked around on that mountain on Moriah and he saw a ram prepared by God. And Abraham called that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide for himself. The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And it was John who, upon seeing Jesus from a distance, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jehovah Jireh's lamb. This was John's ministry to be the arrow that pointed to God's lamb of sacrifice. And even after John's death, some thought that Jesus was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. I mean, what a testimony to his ministry. That when men saw Jesus, they thought it was John. Which begs us to ask the question, Beloved, what do people think when they see you? And what do people think when they see me? Is there any semblance of Jesus? To summarize John's ministry, I believe no one said it better than Paul. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. And this is what John did. He didn't preach himself, but Christ as Lord. And when people came up to him and asked him if he was the Christ, he simply pointed them away from himself and to the one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. He must increase and I must decrease. This was the nature of John's ministry. And Here in Luke, we see John enter into the public scene. The child who was held in the arms of Zechariah has come out of the wilderness and into the presence of the people. And Luke, he he wants to answer for us the question that the people asked when John was born. What then will this child be? What then will this child be? And the first thing that Luke tells us is that John was a prophet who spoke from God. That John was a prophet who spoke from God. Notice here in chapter 3, Luke begins by providing for us a rather extensive list of a who's who as to the powers that be over the people of Israel. Luke is being a very precise historian, and he makes sure to place the ministry of John in its proper historical context. And by comparing what Luke says here with ancient sources, we can determine that the beginning of John's ministry can be placed sometime between 26 and 29 AD, most likely 27 AD. But let's look at this list for a moment. 
it starts at the top with the Roman king, Tiberius Caesar. Now, he's not the same Caesar who was Augustus Caesar during the time of Jesus' birth. Augustus died and Tiberius was the only remaining successor. And as such, he held the most powerful position in the entire world. But he was, by all the Roman emperors, he was by far the most immoral, the most perverse, whose actions would shock even today's pagan sensibilities. Now, it was this Caesar who made the decision to appoint Pontius Pilate as the ruling local authority or the governor, as it says here, of over Judea. Pilate is portrayed in history as being proud and arrogant and cynical. Yet he's also weak and indecisive. There's an incident that Luke makes reference of in chapter 13, in which he reversed a policy of earlier governors by marching his troops into Jerusalem, carrying standards that bore images that the Jews viewed as idolatrous. The people protested, and he threatened death if they didn't stop bothering him. But the Jews, they called his bluff and dared him to carry out his threat. An unwilling Pilate, unwilling to massacre so many people, he ended up removing the offending images. All that to show that he was a poor and he was a weak leader. Notice that moving down the power structure here, Luke tells us that there were three additional local rulers. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the Tetrarch over the region of Eturia and Trachonitis. These two were members of the notorious Herod family, sons of Herod the Great. And you'll remember that Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered all the baby boys in Bethlehem for fear of the child Jesus. But when he died, his his domain was divided among his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Archelaus was so brutal, he was so inept as a leader that he was removed from his position and his territory was given over to the control of the Roman governor, which was Pilate, in the area of Judea and Samaria in the south. Antipas took over control in the Galilee in the north, and he took over the name of Herod. And this is the Herod that we see throughout the ministry of Jesus in the gospel accounts. This is the Herod who imprisoned and beheaded John the Baptist for rebuking him for divorcing his wife and taking his brother's wife as a second wife. He would also be responsible for the unjust trial of Jesus. But there was also Philip, Tetrarch, over the northeastern area of the Galilee. And then you had Lysanias, Tetrarch, over the northwestern area of Damascus. Now make no mistake, all these men were pagans who thirsted for power. Now notice Luke now, he moves from the secular realm to the religious John's ministry began during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was more like a former high priest. He wasn't really the official high priest. Israel could only have one high priest at a time. He had already been removed from his role by the Romans. But Annas was the most powerful religious figure in all of Israel. And even though his son-in-law, Caiaphas, held the official position, Annas was the real power in the land. He was notoriously wicked and greedy. A major source of his income came from the temple as he received a share of the proceeds from the sale of animals that are sold for sacrifice. And he charged that only those sold for sale at the temple 
Only those animals were approved for offering. He also got a cut of the fees from the money changers who charged the Jews to exchange their foreign currency. It's because only Jewish money was accepted to pay for the temple tax. And so his greed was so infamous that the outer courts of the temple where business was conducted, it became known as the Bazaar of Annas. But it's not like Caiaphas was any different. His interests were one in the same. And so these two spiritual mediators over Israel were one of the most wretched individuals that resided in all of Jerusalem. Just as greedy and corrupt as the pagans they despised. And they hated Jesus all the more. It's because the 12-year-old boy who cherished being in the temple in which he called, remember this, my father's house, he came back as a man with a leather whip and he drove out the money changers. Remember that? And he ended up overturning tables and he ended up disrupting their business. And what's noteworthy from the Gospel of Matthew is that when he did, he said this, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. Luke, he lists out seven very powerful and wicked men. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, and the two other tetrarchs, Philip and Lysanias, Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests. These were the evil men in charge, ruling the world both politically and spiritually. And it's against this backdrop of moral and spiritual darkness when all the world was in control of the hands of vile men. Notice with me, verse 2, that the Word of God came. That the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Not in the place of prominence in Rome or in the high seats of Judea or even in the temple which had been turned into a place of scandal. But the word of God came to John in the wilderness, which tells us that the word of God can break through. That the word of God can penetrate through any evil, any darkness, and it can come in any place. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. This is the potency of God's word. Luke is telling us here that in the very bleakest of conditions where the stronghold of power was in the hands of degenerate men, the word of God was able to shine through, breach through the darkness. Notice that Luke gives to us a kind of, a kind of buildup, an evil buildup. He takes us through a catalog of wicked authorities, wicked authority after wicked authority after wicked authority to heighten the tension, to increase the impact. And it's in this dark and immoral and hopeless context in which the word of God came. You see, church, nothing is more significant. Nothing holds more power. Nothing supersedes God and his word. Now, what does this mean for our situation? It means that nothing is more vital than when the Word of God comes to us in the congregation, week by week, when we sit under the preaching and the teaching of Holy Scripture. For it has the very power to break through whatever we have going on in our lives, 
to teach us and to exhort us, to rebuke us, to grow us, to sanctify us. Notice here that the most important event in what looks to be in the reign of a lot of important people was that the Word of God came, and it came down to John. You see, nothing then should be of more importance than when the Word of God comes to us. When we open the book and read the book and hear the book taught and preached. Now, let me speak a little bit from the perspective of the preacher. There's a reason why pastors give anecdotes and share personal stories and act some kind of drama on a stage. They don't believe the word has power. They don't think it has the potency to break through. And that's a problem. And that to the detriment of their people and their listeners. Give me a man who believes in the book who trusts in its authority, who believes in its primacy, who knows that it can break through any heart and soul. That it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce through soul and spirit. And so the Word of God came to John. And there's another thing we need to see here before we move on to the second point. Luke Notice, he, he changes his writing form. Remember, Luke is a historian. He's writing a narrative form of the things which have been accomplished, as he had told us at the very outset of his gospel. But here in his introduction in Luke chapter 3, he, he takes on a different form. And the form is of Old Testament prophecy. Listen how Zechariah Zachariah begins. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Here is how Haggai starts. In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Jeremiah says that the word of the Lord came to me in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of... And it goes on and on. This is how the prophets start. And so Luke is setting up John's ministry to us like every other Old Testament prophet to say this. Here is God's man. Here is God's prophet. This is who John is. What then will this child be? God's prophet, but not just God's prophet, but he would have the greatest ministry of all his predecessors because he would stand upon their shoulders and look over the horizon and point to the coming savior and say, this is the one whom all the prophets spoke and not only point to the savior, but John was the only prophet who got to see the very savior in the flesh. No prophet was given that special privilege. Jesus said this about John. He said, truly, I say to you, there has been no one born among women greater, greater than John the Baptist. And some people make the mistake to think that it's because John possessed some kind of merit that was greater than anyone else. But no, it, that's not the reason why. It's because of the grace that he was shown. The grace to be in that unique position of the last prophetic voice to usher in 
God's long-expected Redeemer and King. That's why he was so great. This is who John is. And so firstly, John was a prophet who spoke from God. And secondly, John was a prophet who prepared the people for God. When John confronted the sins of Herod, he was put away and he was locked up in a prison cell. And while incarcerated, he had heard about the deeds of Christ, but he wasn't really sure what Jesus was doing. He didn't know what Jesus was preaching. And so he sent word by his disciples and through them he asked, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus, he receives the question, and you would think that the simple answer would be, yes, don't worry about it, John. I am the Christ. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus gives him a special coded message. And he says, tell this to John. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached them. Well, what is he saying here? What kind of message is that? Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 35. And it is a passage full and pregnant with promises made to Israel. And there in the context of Isaiah 35, Israel was cut off and separated from their homeland. They were in exile in Babylon. And what separated them between their captivity and the land of Israel, their home, was the desert. The wilderness, this huge expanse. And in Isaiah chapter 35, the the prophet speaks to the people to say, God is coming to the rescue. The desert that you see that separates you from going back home, God is going to make that desert blossom like a flower with rejoicing and singing. That wilderness that separates you from your homeland will be totally transformed. God is coming to rescue you and bring you out of that exile, out of that bondage, and into the liberty of your homeland. And he's going to do it through his Messiah. And Isaiah 35 goes on to say that a highway, a highway will be there. And it will be called the Holy Way. And the ransom of the Lord will come and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. And there will be gladness and joy. Go tell that to John. And when John heard Jesus' words from Isaiah 35, he knew, he understood, Jesus, Jesus, this Jesus is the one. It's because it was right in line with what he was preaching. He was the voice, Luke chapter 3, verse 4, of one crying out of the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now notice that at this time, here in Luke, that the people of Israel had come back from exile, right? They're not in Babylon. They're in Israel. Geographically, they had come back to the promised land. They had come back and they had built the temple. But somehow, the the, the promises of Isaiah and the promises of the other prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, it didn't seem to have come to fulfillment. There was something left undone. Yes, the people were geographically relocated to Jerusalem, but there was something missing. And what was missing was that they still needed to be spiritually relocated 
into fellowship with God. That's what they needed. And this is why when Jesus, he teaches, remember, when he preaches on the prodigal son, he says that the wayward son, remember the wayward son? He journeyed into a what? A far, a far and distant country. The far and distant country of alienation from God. The far and distant country of rebellion against God. You see, for the people of Israel, yes, they were back home. But they were still in bondage. They were still imprisoned. They were still chained in their unbelief and in their sin. And so here then was John's ministry to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight the highway for the coming ransom of the Lord. And so every valley shall be filled, filled, as it says in Luke, every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see, John's ministry was to tell the people that they were still chained and that they were still imprisoned and that they needed to be rescued and freed to prepare that highway. And you see, Christian, we... We often think, just like these Israelites, that a change in our circumstances will solve everything. If I move to this place, if I get back to Israel, everything will be okay. If I get that job, or if I get married, and so on and so on. The Israelites thought that a change in their circumstances would change everything. And the time-tested truth is that it doesn't. For everything to be changed, something radical, something new needs to happen in here. Our hearts need transformation. Our souls need a reformation that we might see our need to be in fellowship with God. This is what really changes everything. And this is what every man, woman, and child needs. Non-Christian, can I ask you, why are you here today? Why are you here? Can I ask you, what are you looking for? Is it a change in your circumstances? You see, coming to church and being here geographically doesn't account for anything. Seeking some kind of self-improvement in your life, it won't do anything. Reordering your life, even reorganizing your priorities, is not what at the end of the day you need. That won't really change anything. You must be reconciled to God. You need to get on this path, to get on this highway to the Lord. You see, there is something more enslaving, more dominating than any circumstance that you might imagine. It is our sin. It is your sin. That's the real problem. We heard about it today in the children's sermon. Sin that condemns us. Sin that destroys us. Sin that alienates us from God. And we are chained to it. We cannot not sin. It's as natural to us as breathing. And we need to be free. The power of sin must be broken. We need to be brought to God by this highway. And here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
You see, Jesus Christ is that way. He is salvation, the salvation of God. He died on the cross as God's lamb. He laid down his life as our substitute, as an offering for sins. He absorbed God's wrath on behalf of sinners. But his death isn't the end all. And it's not that we need a savior who will die for us, but we need a savior who will die for us and conquer over death. And so he was raised and that to resurrection life, which he gives and which is before you right now, non-Christian, if you come to him in trusting faith, this can be yours. If you turn from your sins, despairing of your condition and to Jesus Christ, looking to him for salvation. Repent of your sins and believe upon him. Notice when we come to the ministry of John, this is what he preached. He preached a message of repentance, which brings us to our next point. And so thirdly, John was a prophet who preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice Luke chapter three, verse three. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does this mean? A baptism of repentance. Now, we know that John was called John the Baptist because he was often baptizing those who were coming to him. But for what? Why was he given that description? What kind of baptism was John proclaiming? It wasn't the kind of baptism that we're familiar with, the kind which symbolizes Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and our union with him. So what was it? Notice here that John was baptizing Jews. And that was new. Baptism was reserved here for Gentiles. And it was reserved for Gentiles wanting to be a part of the covenant people of God. They were outside the community. And so to get into the community, non-Jews were baptized as a symbol of cleansing for their Gentile filth. And so it was for proselytes, those who wanted to be identified with God's covenant people. And why didn't Jews get baptized? It's because they were already a part of the covenant people of God. Outwardly, they had the sign. And we've been going through this in uh, our Sunday school with Pastor Eric. The sign of circumcision. They had the sign of the covenant. So what was this baptism of repentance? It was John telling these Jews. Who thought themselves to be a part of God's covenant people. Having the sign of the covenant. You need to repent. You need to be cleansed. Matthew chapter 3 verse 6 says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He was calling Jews to admit that being a Jew was no guarantee of receiving the blessing of God. And so this baptism was the outward sign that these Jews were renouncing their old dependency on their ethnic Jewishness and relying wholly on the mercy of God to forgive those who confess their sins and repent. To put it very simply, John was preaching to a bunch of people who thought they were saved. You need to be saved. 
And I wonder how many of us who think ourselves to be safe need to be truly safe. Relying on some outward thing, depending on some external act, trusting in anything else but Christ. It may be that you come to church each and every Sunday. It may be that you know all there is to know to be a Christian or that you have reformed theology. It may be that you've been baptized. It may be that you've made some kind of profession of faith in the past. It may be that you've made or you make a profession here in the present. And you see, all those things can be true of a person and yet not saved. When then, what then saves a sinner if not their theology? If not their baptism? If not their profession? We sing the song, What can wash away my sins? What's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the answer. Nothing then in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. And how does it end? Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's not even your repentance that saves. But Christ and Christ alone who saves. Christian. What are you? Who are you trusting in? This is for you, Christian. When John came out of that wilderness, do you know who he came preaching this message of repentance to? People who thought themselves to be saved. And notice how he began his sermon to them. You can see it there in verse 7. He called all of them, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Who begins a sermon like that? John the Baptist does. That's not very polite. But it's because vipers are not that very polite. They don't stop and they don't ask you if they can bite your hand or if they can bite your foot. In the book of Acts, Paul was picking up some sticks to throw them into the fire to warm himself while he was on the island of Malta. But one of those sticks wasn't what it appeared to be. And a viper came out of the fire and latched onto his hand. You see, viper, as John uses it here, is another word for hypocrite. To look like something on the outside. To look like something on the outside. For it not to be true in the inside. And John, by calling those who came to him, Vipers. He wasn't being rude, but he was being real. And so it may be, Christian, that you need to be honest with yourself. Whether or not you are truly in the faith. Whether or not this hypocrisy is living inside of you. And what if you find that your soul is full of it? That your heart What if you find that your heart is full of vipers and you find yourself utterly despairing and absolutely broken over your sins and you feel yourself to be never more wretched than you've ever been before? 
Well, this is exactly where God would have you. You see, this is his grace. This is his grace to save you. And so may we all examine ourselves. May we all look at our souls to see if Christ is there, beloved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when we examine our hearts in the mirror of your holy word, we find that not a single one of us is viper free. For there is hypocrisy that moves in all our hearts. We confess that we claim that what we claim to be on the outside is never truly what's going on in the inside. We act like we're righteous, yet in truth we are wretches. Forgive us for our sins and give us mercy. Would we look to the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God's Lamb of sacrifice for our sins? For nothing but His blood can wash away all our sins. Give us the grace to trust you more and to look to ourselves less. Would we, like John, decrease and Christ increase? And would we live our lives in gratitude and thankfulness for rescuing us from our bondage through your Son, for relocating our hearts into fellowship by your Spirit? We thank you for saving us to the uttermost. In the name of our great God and Savior, we pray. Amen.